Thanks for joining us for this episode of Centra Scripts, where we talk health and wellness and practical tips for your everyday life. And now here's your host, Kate Kolb. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Centra Scripts. We are actually doing something a little different today, something we have not done before. We have a panel of people here with us today um, from CASA, actually here in the community. So I've got Christy Horsley, Cassie Gata, and Kevin Birnbaum that have joined us today. And we've got a little bit of integration from both the Centra side of things and our community advocate side of things. So what I want to do is give you guys all an opportunity to introduce yourselves and just give a little bit of background on what CASA is. So Christy, let me start with you um, and we'll just go kind of down the panel and do introductions. And then Christy, if you want to tell us a little bit about CASA and what, what it is for the community. Yeah. So my name is Christy Horsley and I'm an advocate manager with CASA, um, which means I support volunteers who plug into the cases and the children that we serve. Um, I've done that for, gosh, I keep losing track, but I want to say it's going to be seven years this summer. And I was a a volunteer myself for a year and a half prior to that. Um, I grew up in the Lynchburg community, tons of connections to Centro. I was born at Virginia Baptist. Um, My first job out of high school was a secretary, um, a huck at Lynchburg General Hospital. And I did that for six years um, as I worked my way through college. Um, And then I lived in um, overseas for a few years. And then when I came back uh, is actually when I became a CASA volunteer and and plugged into this role. And even when I was living overseas, I remember seeing it online or something and thinking, okay, when I go back home, when I'm back in the States, that is something I want to do. So um, I saw a sign shortly after uh, returning a yard sign and again, signed up as a volunteer and, and did that before I came on staff. Cool. Well, Cassie, what about you? Um, I'm Cassie Cotta, and I have been a CASA volunteer for about five years, right at five years. And I am a nurse also at Centra. Our family moved here from Tucson um, 10 years ago, and I started out being a psych nurse on adult psych at Virginia Baptist Hospital. And since then, I am doing part-time case management in all three inpatient psych units. And I've been doing that for most of the time we've been here. Um, I think that's it. Okay. <laughs> that's great. All right, Kevin. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Uh, my name's Kevin Birnbaum, as, uh, as you mentioned earlier. Um, I'm the rookie in the room, I believe. Um, I am a, uh, a volunteer advocate, fresh in, I guess, about seven months-ish. Um, uh, um, came out of the fall training program um, last year and uh, just kind of dove right in. So these these folks are great. It's been great getting to know them. Um, I also work with Center. As you said, we've got some integration in the room. I work up at uh, the medical group as a part of uh, their administrative team. And yeah, the, the CASA team has just been great to work with. And um, obviously their, their mission is is so paramount to this community. So Christy, I want to bring it back to you for a minute. At the time of this recording, it is currently National Child Abuse Prevention Month. And that was one of the reasons that we wanted to get everybody together in the room and sit down and talk about this and talk a little bit about why CASA is such an important thing. And so before we go any further, if there are people listening and they're like, I don't know what CASA is, can you define that for us and and let us know uh, what the mission of that organization is? Yeah, absolutely. So CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate. And basically, we serve in cases of child abuse and neglect that are moving through the J&D court system. Um, it, there has to be an underlying case of abuse or neglect. We don't serve custody cases, for example. Um, so when there is childhood abuse or neglect, the judge appoints 
the CASA program the case, and then we try and plug in a volunteer to serve the case. And when a volunteer is appointed to the case, they will visit the child monthly in their placement wherever they are living to make sure that they're safe. And really, their job is to act as a sponge and soak up everything that there is to know about that child's world and to absorb that information and give it back to the judge in the form of a court report so that the judge can make effective and safe decisions for the child as to where the child should live or any services the family or the child might need. Um, if you think about it, um, in very high stakes decisions, um, uh, judges are making decisions about whether to return a child home to a place where previously they experienced abuse or neglect, but where the child still has very strong ties. And the person in the room making those decisions, the judge is the one that knows the least about the case. Yeah. So it is critical that they have good, reliable information to make those decisions. So that's part of what we do and advocate for the child along the way in between court hearings. Sure. Now, Cassie and Kevin, you both have been through the advocate training. In your experience, how many cases have you advocated for in those five years? Do you even have a number that you can count? So I'd say that I'm maybe not typical in that I still, in general, cases are intended to, once a child is removed from the home, to be done, a decision made, and some sort of permanency placement accomplished at the period of 12 months. And there are different stages along the um, way that things are supposed to happen. I have one child that I've had since for five years from that initial case. He had siblings that were adopted, but um, I still have that one. I have another one that is a long-term. So mine have been more long-term. So I guess I've had eight children total um, that I've been advocating for in that five years. Yeah. But again, that is, I'd say, not typical. But I think Cassie's case, so eight children total, but also she has served one child for five years. Yeah. And I think that her examples, her her advocacy really demonstrates the high touch advocacy that we want to deliver. Mm -hmm. So if you talk to any of the professionals that work on Cassie's cases, she is there for that child. Not only is she seeing the child monthly in their placement as they're supposed to, but also she has probably been the person that has independently reviewed the most medical records for the child before they came into care um, that can continue to impact, you know, current functioning from previous abuse or neglect. Um, also to the school, checking in to make sure everything is needed there. We may have to participate in some educational advocacy to make sure the child's placement or the services they're getting at school are appropriate. She's been with them through every single uh, placement that they've been. Again, a lot of our kids may need residential placement or switch foster homes. The social worker might change throughout the life of the case. The attorney may change, but Cassie has been the consistent person in this child's life. And she also has so many back pieces of the story. She has talked to family members, parents. Um, again, she may hold more of the child's story than anyone else in this child's world at this point. So well, that's amazing. And Kevin, I want to I want to ask you too because you you jokingly said that you were the rookie of the team in the room here today. Um, but you know, what was 
What was behind your decision to become an advocate? Why was that important to you? And and what got you introduced to that program? Sure. Yeah. No, certainly the rookie, like I said, seven months in and uh, went through Christy's training program and she's absolutely great. So I want to give her a shout out uh, just publicly here because that training program um, certainly equipped us well to advocate for these children and do that effectively. But um, what, you know, my, my calling, if you will, was, was a personal experience, really. Um, I had an advocate uh, through um, uh, just some events that trans inspired um, when uh, during my childhood and that advocate um, I don't want to say uh, you know I, I attribute a lot of good things in my life because of that advocate but certainly that person was there to speak for me when I didn't have a voice in that courtroom um, and so you know personal experience really is what what did it for me and certainly the need I don't Christy probably has a better understanding of what the list is for children that you know don't have an advocate but need an advocate currently and I, I understand from this area it's just been growing and growing and and COVID as as we've come back into you know more of a life of normalcy, if you will. Um, you have more professionals getting eyes on children now and, and, and discovering more cases of abuse and neglect. And so, you know, for me, um, certainly this has been a little bit of uh, a soft spot for me. Um, th these children that really don't have a voice that need a voice and, um, and we're able to provide that independent voice to the judge. Yeah. I love that so much. And I love that, you know, this program gives such an opportunity for people who have had either a background in dealing with some of that court stuff in their own lives or, you know, just somebody who has been, you know, in Cassie's case, like on the medical side of things or something where you can just lean into something in a volunteer um, status and really make a difference in your community. And so from a healthcare stance, because obviously this is a healthcare podcast, we did want to launch into some of the things that are surrounding Child Abuse Prevention Month and why this is important to be discussing and kind of bring some of that awareness to the forefront. So we're going to kind of work through some concepts here um, for just a little bit. And the first one that I wanted to kind of present to you guys was, you know, a lot of these children are coming into this program in need of an advocate because of trauma in their lives. So how would we define the trauma um, that they're experiencing in general? And then, you know, maybe go into like the types of trauma that you guys see on a regular basis and how, how you would deal with that from an advo advocacy standpoint. Yeah. And Cassie, double check me because I feel like there are so many definitions of trauma. So I want to give, first of all, a generalized definition of trauma, and then we can talk about some of the specific trauma that some of our kids experience. So I would say a definition of trauma would be an event where there is threat to life or perceived threat to life or safety such that it overwhelms and floods the coping mechanisms. Does that feel like a, a fair definition? What would you add to that? I'd say an event or a series of events. Um, more and more we know that, uh, so it's, it's not just what we think of as trauma, physical and say sexual abuse, or the sort of the big things I think people think of when they think about trauma and then child abuse. But what we know is that emotional neglect, physical neglect, um, having the presence of mental illness or somebody in prison or divorce or all the family stressors that happen have this tremendous impact on both physical and, and mental health. That's, I, that's all I would add to it. Is, and, it and it's not necessarily, uh, different children will react differently to the very same event. And that's important to realize as well. And lots of children um, and adults can have trauma that doesn't necessarily lead to coming into foster care, right? right? So a lot of the trauma that our kids have experienced, so 
And a lot of them experience very layered on trauma, right? So there may be, for example, I've had multiple kids on my caseload that have had lead poisoning. And here I am. I practically forgot that lead poisoning oh, wow. even exists. And that's still a thing. But a lot of our kids and families may be living in poverty or areas where they're exposed to more environmental toxins. So that's a piece of it. And poverty and the scarcity, um, that in itself uh, can be a trauma. Food scarcity, um, uncertainty about if those basic needs are going to be met. Um, and then also a lot of our kids have experienced neglect. So for example, um, parental incapacitation due to substance use mm-hmm. falls under that definition of neglect. And I would say at this point, the vast majority of our cases do involve parental substance use of some sort. Right. And also it's worth noting that more and more If a parent has used substances, we almost always try and test the kids when they come into care because like meth especially is very easily absorbed through the skin. So that can be absorbed through the carpet or furniture or the parent's clothing or um, so that's an element. But also um, things like Cassie was talking about. So um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, observing, witnessing domestic violence is extremely traumatic. And also it's worth noting, so this is a general principle in terms of what we call adverse childhood events, these categories of the most common types of child trauma. Um, If you have one adverse childhood event or one trauma, then it's likely you may have had more than one. They co-occur. And that's definitely true for our kids. But it's also worth noting that the separation from family is also in itself a trauma. So it's really important that we keep that in mind, that even though we want the children to be safe, we also, it's that cost-benefit analysis of what is going to be gained versus lost when we emergently and suddenly take the child from their home and family. Mm -hmm. So um, I will say too, for whatever it's worth, in July, we have um, new federal legislation that's coming. So currently when kids come into foster care, it unlocks a lot of funding to address these things like parental substance abuse and um, trauma in the child and parent's relationship, et cetera. What we really want is to unlock that funding while the child is still in the home. We want to, as a community, wrap around the family and children to help them stabilize so that we can do that and the family remain unified um, and help everyone stabilize without adding more trauma on top of it. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that taking a look at the trauma from, you know, not only what is acutely happening or, you know, maybe that chronic um, level of events that are occurring, but the fact that you are, you know, aware of the fact that there is some trauma when you're changing environments and things like that that are happening as well. Um, Talk a little bit about then, I guess, the types of trauma and Cassie, maybe this is for you or or whoever at the table wants to answer it. But, um, you know, we've kind of overlaid some of that in the way that you've been talking, but from a medical standpoint, what are the differences between acute, chronic, and complex trauma? I would say, I'm not sure that I'm completely equipped to answer that question. Um, I think that what we know about the effect of trauma on, or, and especially like the ongoing neglect or ongoing um, abuse, say, or ongoing exposure to parent that is abusing substance or, or things like that, um, is that it has a great effect on the child's um, nervous system and their uh, brain's ability to 
recognize safety and unsafety. So, and not and being safe and not safety, and it and it's a physiologic state um, that might not be obvious from the outside that a child that's been exposed over and over again to say violence or um, neglect or that sort of stress, um, not enough food, will become hypervigilant. Um, the way that they learn, the way that they are able to interact, especially with other people, their behaviors so often, um, they might go to school or be in situations where their behaviors are very aggressive or very violent or things like that. We focus on changing those behaviors, of course, because we don't want those, but we don't focus on the causes of the behavior and the traumas really are the causes of those behaviors. That that response and the physiologic response to that sort of toxic ongoing stress that leads kids to come into trauma leads to huge increases in things that you would think about like suicide and ending up in prison and not graduating from high school and um, high-risk behaviors, but also heart disease and lung disease and cancer. You know, it, it, and it, it doesn't seem to, um, it's, it's accumulation, so I guess it's having more than one and the more adverse childhood experiences. This is one particular study, ACEs, that a lot of the trauma research has been and the interventions have been directed towards. Um, it, it doesn't actually seem to matter which four you have, which four kinds of adverse effects you have, whether it's, you know, you might think, well, sexual abuse and physical abuse must be worse, but if you, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, and so that affects people throughout their lives. And um, when I was first exposed to this, and I've sort of been immersing myself in it ever since I was a CASA, this, this um, information, what really stuck to me and what, what really stood out to me, what I think is so important, is that it's not us and them. It's not something that just happens to um, a certain community, a certain race, a certain socioeconomic status. I mean, certainly in CASA, we're going to be, ex the kids that come into care, the kids are going to be perhaps those with less resources, those with, but that doesn't mean that it's exclusive to certain communities or certain, it's, it's all of us answer the best um, thing that we can do for kids is to have emotionally regulated caretakers, adults, so what Christy was speaking to was really supporting families, wrapping services around families from the very beginning um, so that they have the resources to, um, to stay together and to be emotionally regulated and take care of their kids because many of the parents of the children that come into care are certainly that I could say exclusively um, the cases that I've dealt with at CASA have had tremendous trauma and adverse, I mean, unspeakable trauma and um, themselves. And I think something that Cassie is saying here is a central idea that I really want to draw out for the listeners. I think that this is true both for children and for adults, because Cassie is exactly right. The parents that we see on our caseload today were the CASA children of five years ago yeah. or 10 years ago. And that, that's not an exaggeration. I'm seeing 
parents on my caseload that I served on their cases or supervised their cases when they were teens. So general principle, every time you see dysfunction, you've got to rewind to find the wound. What was the trauma? It's kind of like if you see someone gushing blood on the street or if someone comes into the ER, you know, you might, if you can't find the wound and you're searching and searching, you might, you know, we're not just going to say, oh, they must just have a really strange body. They're atypical. Okay. Like we, we can't find anything. It's them. Okay. It's, it's them. Um, no, anytime we see dysfunction, again, whether it's in adults or children, it doesn't come from nowhere. It always comes from somewhere. So you have to rewind to find what that was. Um, and sort of to your question, Kate, I want to circle back to the question you asked about the types of trauma, but also I looked up stats this morning and um, like there are ranges of numbers, but at least one study said that for every child, like for one child victim of childhood abuse, it's a cost of $1.8 million over their lifetime. Um, and that's in terms of medical costs um, in childhood, of productivity losses, um, probably for the parent, but also throughout their adult life. Um, additional services they may need at school to help calm their overactivated nervous system or learning loss that they experienced as a result. Um, counseling, just tons of costs. Um, so it is cost, the most cost-effective thing is to prevent child abuse, but also, again, to come around and to support children and families that have experienced it. And to your question about the types of trauma, so yeah, I think this is a, a, a good thing for your listeners to understand. So the first kind of trauma, acute trauma. So this might be, again, a lot of your listeners may have experienced acute trauma when they had a medical event or had to have a hospitalization or a car crash. So it's something that maybe is short-lived, kind of a one-time thing. And the goal, the hope is to, if your child have a well-regulated caregiver, to be able to help you absorb and cushion that blow and help you return to baseline and process through it. Um, if you're an adult, hopefully you have a support network and resources that can help you do that. Um, the second type is chronic trauma. So this is just like it na its name suggests, it's a long-lived, ongoing trauma that you can't really escape from. So this might be something like poverty or living in an unsafe neighborhood, or having an unsafe school. Um, so again, it's long lasting. Then there's a third type that's called complex trauma. And this is what a lot of the kids and parents on our caseloads have experienced. So it is many multiple acute events of trauma that are profound, like incidents of abuse or domestic violence, um, as well as it's inescapable and ongoing. But the hardest thing about complex trauma a lot of times is that it's coming from the safe place, right? So think about, for example, sexual abuse from a school teacher or a priest or a parent. Um, you can't escape to regulate because your safe place is where the danger is coming from. And again, how do you cope or process around that? Because some of your most fundamental definitions of life and understanding of life come from your, your safe places. But also very relevant to current um, 
current events is generational or historic trauma. So this is where maybe the individual themselves didn't experience trauma, but it is passed down um, potentially even in genetics, um, but also, you know, through conversation and kind of through the community. So think about things like the Holocaust or um, even there have been studies done um, like descendants of uh, prisoners of war in the Civil War. Um, descendants, uh, their their bodies stored um, energy differently. It, it kind of held on to food, carbohydrates more. Um, so think of, for example, policing of communities of color and the way that communities of color experience that. So these are wounds that are handed down. And again, it is meant to be protective, right? And I want to make a point, kind of like Cassie was saying, the way that children or parents' bodies and brains change around that trauma, it's absolutely appropriate. It's a protective thing. So think about what happens in the body. Like if you've ever been in a car accident or something like that, like in that moment, you're probably grateful that your body isn't focusing on, let's do a long, slow, luxurious digestion of like a meal that we just had, or let's sit down and do some calculus. No, um, your, your heart rate spikes, your breathing is going fast. You've got, um, hormones like adrenaline and cortisol spike. Um, and those are all very protective in the moment. But think about if there's a child that is experiencing that chronically. Yeah. How is that going to affect them long term? We have children in classrooms, kind of like Cassie was saying, that become hypervigilant. Um, and you can imagine a child that's lived through domestic violence or physical or sexual abuse at home they are going to be hypervigilant for threats in their environment. They're going to be scanning the environment kind of like a cop doesn't like to be seated with their back to the room, similar to a child who maybe has experienced abuse. Um, and also there are very real impacts on the brain, like it damages language, um, executive functioning, cause and effect, all kinds of things. So it, it shows up in very real and concrete ways in the classroom. But a lot of times, and this is a great medical connection too, a lot of times in our kids, it ends up being diagnosed as ADHD or autism. Um, PTSD can look very similar to ADHD and autism. It has a lot of the same characteristics. Yeah. So clearly this is a very, very complex topic. This is not something that there's maybe just step A, B, C, and then we get to D, and then there's, you know, a, a an event that we can just erase it all. Um, and, you know, I, lo I love that you brought in that that idea of the generational pieces of it and the fact that these kids are dealing with things that their parents have been dealing with, but then it, it goes into the way that they develop um, into their adulthood as well. So coming out of that discussion of, of trauma and how we define it and, and seeing how these kids are dealing with it, I guess the big question here on the table would be, well, what do we do with this? Um, you know, what is the cure, quote unquote, um, for for facing childhood trauma and how do we help that? And I think that's a huge piece of what you all do at CASA and what you're doing as advocates for these children. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I, I hate to just use the word cure because it feels like it's just an overall blanket to this. But but how are how are you helping to treat the trauma in these um, kids when they come they come see you and they've been in these varying states of trauma? I think it starts with relationship, both um, with this child at the center, um, being uh, listening, deep listening to everybody involved, um, and get them safe first yeah. um, to ensure that they are 
um, in a safe placement as you evaluate the rest of it. Uh, there are various services that are offered to everyone, the child, um, the parents, um, the caregivers. You look to see if there is a family relationship that can be supported because we know that it's better if um, kids can be with a family member. It's not always possible, but it's better. Um, so there's different supports of parenting, coaching, uh, counseling and evaluations for the parents, substance abuse treatment. Um, sometimes it's criminal things, you know, that the parents are, have, but that's, that's, I guess that's a little bit different. Um, supporting them in school and making sure that they have the right testing and um, IEPs if it's value or services. School stability is a big thing, trying to keep them, and that's all. That's also can be very hard. Sometimes kids, as placements end, they might be, and, and Christy touched on this, but it's super traumatic to be, literally they're picked up yeah. <laughs> from their house, like pack a bag and, and, and picked up and taken to a strange place they've never been before. But there are a lot of different kind of services, both health-wise and um, psychologically and resource-wise that are offered offered to parents. And Cassie and Kevin, tell me if this seems accurate. I know Cassie and I have had a lot of conversations. So, you know, a lot of the things that Cassie was describing, there are a lot of things therapeutically available to our kids and families, but also I feel like a lot of our role as CASA, like we talked about how Cassie has large pieces of her child's story. I feel like a lot of our role is as CASA coming to the tables of these different systems that our children are engaging with, the court system, the medical system, educational system. And a lot of times it may be educating those systems about trauma and, hey, no, this child, the, the snapshot, the Polaroid snapshot that you have in the moment is not the sum totality of this child. You don't know all the backstory and not that it's our role to educate them about the child's full backstory, but also to say, hey, what you're seeing, this is what trauma looks like and let's preserve the positive vision of this child and kind of speak of that positive vision and everything that they can become back into the system to remind and and keep reframing it positively. So a very concrete example, like when I sit down at IEP tables, um, terminology that I sometimes hear is, this child is attention-seeking. Um, and I will say, so are they attention-seeking or are they relationship-seeking? Are they esteem-seeking? Because what you're describing to me seems like they're really looking for a way to connect with an adult and receive feedback. Um, so I really do feel like a lot of times it's sort of us re-educating systems. And also, I will say, and again, curious to hear you guys' perspective, but I feel like there can be a lot of overlap between the advocacy that we do and also advocacy that happens like medically sometimes. So I've sat with a lot of people in the hospital, family members, a lot of times advocacy is shushing the room enough to be able to hear what the patient or the person that we're serving wants. Because a lot of times like we have our way of doing things as a system and we kind of center it around the convenience of us, the professionals and our procedures. But sometimes we may have to say, 
no, we're not going to do it that way because this is what's best for this child who this case in the system is supposed to be serving or this family. Does that feel accurate to you guys? Does that ring true? Yeah, I think I think certainly. And at the core of what you described is is the foundation of what we do, right? It is advocacy in general, but being able to establish a relationship with a child based on, like you said, Cassie, safety. There has to be safety in the relationship between you know, us, the volunteer and the child, you don't just walk into that situation. And so in order to get to know them better and be able to advocate other than, you know, going through all of the different documentation that's available and resources that are available to you, you have to really get to know that child and know what to say at those tables that Christy is alluding to. You have to be able to know that, hey, this treatment plan, this group of professionals, we know in the back of their mind has the right intent and they want to be able to do the right thing for the child, but they don't know all of the backstory that we get immersed into. And so for us to be able to learn those things, and it's just spending time uh, with this child and spending time doing a lot of the investigative work um, that goes on behind the scenes to be able to, at that instance, be able to advocate for what we think is the right path for that child, which may not always be in line with some of the professionals. And, and sometimes those are difficult conversations. But if you just think about how pivotal those conversations are in the lifespan of that child and what type of um, what type of decision at that point really has um, uh, you know, everlasting impact. And I love that. I think, you know, if you have heard any of the other episodes that we have talked about recently, even just in this last quarter, you know, Centra has a just cause that we are putting out there and it's, you know, we're partnering with you to live your best life. And I think Kevin, what you just said really kind of draws on that same idea of, yeah, sometimes these conversations have to happen and they might not align with what the original care plan might've looked like, or maybe conversations that are being had in the room. But what does that look like from a perspective of helping the patient, helping the child live their best life? And so that I think is where we get excited about these partnerships with programs like CASA and with other things that are going on in the community, because it is a way for you all as advocates for these patients and for these, these children that we're seeing, but also as a way for us as an organization to to learn better about what what is actually going on outside the doors of our hospital system and what is going on outside the doors of our clinics and and you're absolutely right we don't see 100% of the story um, when these children come in for care and so i personally love the reflective nature of the fact that you know you guys talked about relationship being a huge huge part of what you're doing to help prevent trauma in the lives of these kids when you see them. And I think relationship is hugely impactful between organizations as well. So I think, you know, just from a personal standpoint um, on the centrist side of things, that rings so very heavily true with, with how we want to partner with you all as an organization and then with these individuals as patients. Um, because we do, we want these kids to be in a safe and healthy environment and for their parents to find that safe and healthy environment too and, and to really start to change the tides of maybe what's going on in the community around us. So I, I so appreciate those perspectives that you're sharing. I did want to talk real briefly here um, about just one other thing, Christy, that you had brought up in some of these notes that we've looked over, this idea of universal precautions. And what does that look like in terms of, um, of trauma and dealing with the longevity of this going forward with these kids? And I love that you brought up the just cause. I love it because I think your Just Cause slogan really captures something about trauma-informed principles mm -hmm. and, and um, strategies of 
centering the voice of the person that we're serving and also viewing them as the expert. They're the expert on their own life and their own story. So we have to sort of sit at their feet and let them teach us about their story and their experiences and how they want to move forward from here. And we also acknowledge that sometimes it can take some participation in therapeutic services to gain further insights into patterns of awareness, et cetera. But really this concept of universal precaution. So um, I love the phrase because it, it goes back to this concept of kind of like during the AIDS, HIV epidemic, you know, maybe we gloved up initially for specific patients, but now it's the universal precaution and it should be, it's good for caregivers. It's good for the patient. So similarly, trauma-informed principles. So things Cassie and Kevin and I have talked about of centering the voice of the person that we're serving, um, relationship, making sure that we have achieved safety for the individual, not just what we think, oh, you're safe now, you're good. Why are you still acting like that? They need to feel safe um, and what they need to feel safe. So all of those things, um, so all of those things um, fall under what I would call universal precautions. So things like schools and medical practices, um, things that we want systems to be practicing. And kind of the, the comparison I draw is so children who are receiving free school lunches, if a child is getting three meals a day, then, you know, that school lunch may be whatever. Um, they may still get fed at home. But if a child is not receiving three meals a day and is experiencing food scarcity, that free school lunch could be the the difference, you know, that, that could really be their lifeline. So similarly, trauma-informed strategies and principles, universal precautions, aren't going to hurt anyone. They're good for everyone, but it can it can be the thing that allows a child to achieve success and nurturing relationships in a school or, or legal system where they might not otherwise. And like, I'll give you a very concrete example. Um, so a lot of our cases may involve domestic violence. So we may be bringing a mom and a dad into the courtroom. So sometimes I've made recommendations in the court report, can we please not seat mom where either um, she is able to make eye contact with dad or dad is able to be staring her down. Like we need mom to feel safe in the courtroom for her to be able to participate effectively in the process. So that's one example. Yeah. Well, and I love, you know, I'm just looking through some of these notes as you're talking to about this universal precautions idea. You know, I, I love the way that you phrased it on the paper. It's not what's wrong with you. <laughs> um, that's super important. And we've, we've talked about that in a few of our other podcasts as well, when we're coming alongside our patients and trying to, to help them and advocate for them. You don't want to just, well, what's wrong with you? You know, it's, it's not that, that is not the key to get to the, the end of the um, existence of, of helping to treat the trauma. And so how would you change that, um, that narrative, I guess, from what's wrong with you to what we want it to be. Right, exactly. Because it's not what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you. Because like we talked about, a lot of those changes that our bodies undergo or even coping mechanisms that we pick up that may, you know, to a medical professional's eye or a counselor's eye say, that's not pro-social or that's hurting your health. Well, the reason that we know about childhood trauma, adverse childhood events, and the impacts is because of a big study that was done in the 1990s through Kaiser Permanente. So it was actually um, a weight loss clinic. There, um, there was a, a clinic that was um, 
serving to help people lose weight. And it was, um, uh, there was a battery of questions that was asked. And especially the doctor was concerned because the, the individuals who were highly successful in the weight loss program kept dropping out. And he thought, well, that doesn't make sense, right? Because the people who are most successful, you would think that they would be motivated and want to keep going. So one day, completely by accident, he actually mixed up some of the questions that he asked um, one of his patients, a female patient. And he asked her, um, how much did you weigh? when you first became sexually active and she said 40 pounds and he said well that doesn't make sense clearly I let me ask it again just to clarify and she said the same thing and she admitted that it was because of sexual abuse from her father um, when she was very young and so he was dumbfounded and he said well this is only the second case of in-family um, sexual abuse I've ever heard of in my 26 years of practicing as a physician this can't be right and when I read that, I'm thinking, yeah. okay, bro, well, all right, that's a little naive. But anyway, so basically he replicated the experience again the next day. And he thought, well, I might just be like accidentally injecting some bias. Let me get my other physicians that are part of the group to also ask some of these questions. And I think they found about 50% of the women um, in their study had experienced sexual abuse. And it turned out that for them gaining weight, eating, it was either a coping mechanism or a protective factor um, protecting them from further abuse. It so, also was biologic changes in yes, their yes. nervous system that caused them to hold on to weight. So it wasn't That's a just good point a psychological. Too. And I think to whatever extent we can rid ourselves of shame and blame and um, and the universal precautions. The other thing I guess I wanted to say around that was it's not us and them, it's us, it's all of us, it's the people that work at Centra, it's, and, and we've all been through a huge dose of stress in this past year yeah. with this pandemic, and we're still going through it, and I think we have to honor ourselves and each other, and to whatever amount of growing empathy and kindness and relationship. And again, it's really important. So Dr. Nadine Burke Harris is one of the foremost voices on this. If you read her book, The Deepest Well, or she's got a great intro TED talk, or even um, an armchair expert podcast episode with Dax Shepard, where she goes into the science a lot more. But really and truly, it's not only the connections between childhood trauma and what we would consider behavioral health choices, like drug use or um, high-risk sexual behavior or smoking or all these things, but it's also so many connections to cardiac disease, um, cancer, autoimmune disease, um, chronic lung disease, childhood asthma, all of these things. So if there's anything, you know, if there's any doctors listening or medical professionals, what I really want, what I think is a great part of the potential solution is more and more of the systems that we work in are becoming alert to this concept of trauma and learning about it and how it affects our populations that we serve. But as Cassie said, it's all of us, right? I feel like a lot of us that are drawn to these helping roles, um, like our, our superpower became empathy, mm -hmm. right? Because we've had experiences that have honed those skills. Um, but also I would love for our medical community to truly understand how that childhood trauma piece impacts the entirety of the lifespan. Mm -hmm. Dr. Nadine Burke Harris's book opens with her brother experiencing a stroke and the doctor asking about all these risk factors. And she said, well, he doesn't, he, he doesn't understand that 
there was childhood trauma and that's an even stronger link um, of a risk factor. So I would love for our medical community to better understand that. And, you know, we look at maybe pediatricians and people who are serving families to really think about um, how can we do maybe screenings for adverse childhood events, um, not even so much for for specific events, but again, just to more wrap around in that generalized precautions. I would love to see like a, a nurse home visiting program. Um, I know Centra is doing their community screening right now, so I'm throwing out ideas just in case. Um, <laughs> we love yeah. that. Yes. No, that's great. And I, you know, I just, as we're starting to kind of wrap up this episode here, I just want to, you know, thank you for everything that has been brought to the table. I think these are important discussions that need to be had, not only from the CASA side of the, the advocacy discussion, but, you know, Cassie, to your point, I think you brought up a lot of really great integrations that happen from the medical standpoint as well. And just gaining that knowledge, but also being able to integrate that into care. Um, and I love, love, love what you said a few minutes ago, Cassie, about, um, you know, we need to get better about, uh, you know, not being so shamed um, about things that happen in our lives or, or, you know, the experiences that we come from. And my, uh, a very good friend of mine is always saying, well, shame off you. And I think that that's a great, um, a great phrase that we can definitely adopt. And, you know, also just, as you mentioned before, I mean, everyone has sort of experienced this heightened level of stress this past year. And so just kind of taking into that effect, the things that maybe we don't think about that are going on in everybody else's existence and in their lives and in their homes and things that people have had to experience this past year that, you know, have maybe been heightened because they've spent a lot more time in one of those unsafe environments that you were talking about, Christy, before. So um, we're quickly running out of time. And I hate that because this is such a good, um, such a good discussion. But I just wanted to give you guys the opportunity to toss out um, some places where people can find more resources about CASA and about these things that you have talked about. So what would be maybe a website or the best place for them to visit if they are interested in getting involved? Absolutely. So our website is cvcasa.org, but we're also on Facebook and Instagram. And if people are interested in becoming advocates like Cassie or Kevin, then the first step would be to sign up to attend an information session, one hour where we kind of talk about the role and um, next steps. Um, and yeah, I would encourage you to follow us on social media because we do try and post about trauma and the way that um, it's, it's real in our lives, in our community, and what we can be working on around that. Yeah. Well, thanks again. And Christy, Cassie, and Kevin, it was such a pleasure to have you guys here today. And uh, we will include that information at the bottom of the blog that will accompany accompany this episode so that you as our listeners can get um, as much information as you want or need about that. And we would love to invite any of our caregivers and our listeners um, to apply for, for that kind of program and, and get in there and do the advocacy thing. So once again, thanks guys for being here and you can tune in more next time.